And as you sit, you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We have two more weeks, this week and next week, on the Sermon on the Mount, and then we are moving on to something else. I can't remember what that is, but we're moving on uh, to something good and glorious. Amen? As we've been doing, uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, we've gone through sections of Scripture where Jesus is constantly drawing our attention to the state of our hearts. And not just the state of our hearts, but the motives, the things we do, and why we do them. Because I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but we always do what we believe. Our actions and our life is an overflow of our beliefs. And there are wrong things. Uh, there's a way to do righteous things the wrong way. And so Jesus is drawing us to do righteous things like giving, righteous things like fasting, righteous things like praying. Uh, as, as those things are done publicly, he wants to make sure that we do them out of uh, uh, the right motive of heart. Because otherwise, our rewar the reward that we will receive is really not the reward that we want. Or, sorry, the reward that, that is best for us. Because some of us, we do want the applause of man. Some of us, we do uh, get a little excited when people affirm us. And I'm not saying that affirmation is bad, but what I'm saying is that's not the motive. That's not the reason why we pray. It's not the reason why we give. It's not the reason why we fast. And so we've been, Jesus has spent the Sermon on the Mount drawing our attention to the state of our hearts and the motives by which we do things. And so when we get to chapter 7, uh, it's no different. It's no different. So last week, uh, the, the call to us was that we would not be anxious or worried, right? That we would trust and trust that God is good, that He's loving, and that He has great things in store for us, for those who are His. And that we ought not to worry, just like the grass isn't worried, just like the birds are not worried, right? Uh, we ought not to worry because anxiety cannot add an hour to our day. So today, we, we deal with, with the reality of community. When we are in community, we are uh, in community with one another and we live with one another in respect to uh, what we believe and what we entrust ourselves to, which is the Lord. And so Jesus has us in community together. We are able to help one another while we're in community together. We're able to accomplish things that we couldn't accomplish as an individual that we can accomplish together, right? So there's a theme of the scripture that God is always gathering us together and being a together kind of people. And so what happens when you bring a group of people together is that you start because the Lord has instilled his truth and his goodness in us, we start uh, moving into helping one another. In particular, helping one another with each other's faults. Like, hey, let me just tell you that you are jacked up in this way or that way. Let me just put the finger on that, right? And so in Matthew 7, what, what the Lord wants us to do is to be aware that we need to discern ourselves, 
that we need to discern the path to eternal life, and we need to discern who is teaching us, who has, uh, who has our ear. And so as we look at Matthew chapter 7, that's our task today. We want to learn uh, how to discern ourselves. We want to learn how to discern the path to life. And we want to learn how to discern uh, or who, sh who we should give our, well, how to discern false prophets or false teachers. Amen? That's what we'll give our attention to today. Let's pray, and then we'll read the word, and then we'll unpack it. Amen? So, Jesus, we bless you, and we thank you that your word is written and that your word is written for our encouragement as a testimony of what you have said, what you have spoken. And we thank you that each and every day that we give our attention to your word, you form us into the image of Christ. And that is your desire, to show, uh, to, to show off your glory by making us look like Jesus. And so as we sit under the teaching of your word today, we ask Holy Spirit that you would illuminate that you would bring revelation, that you would bring uh, just courage, uh, Lord, to align ourselves with your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the word, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. We'll take them a chunk at a time, and then we will um, talk about each section. So, chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you, not be, that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. When Jesus is speaking here, he's teaching his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount, as we've been learning. He's teaching his disciples what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And in this particular section, uh, how to live in community with one another. See, this idea of judging is not necessarily, I think it's got a bad rap in our society. We often hear, judge not lest ye be judged, so therefore I can't say anything about your life and you can't say anything about my life. And that's falsehood. That's not the way that we live in community. That's not the way that we can help one another in the best way. What Jesus is saying here in this passage is to, he says, your issue is that you are looking while overlooking. You are looking at the speck in someone's eye, the, the small issues in people's lives, but you are avoiding looking at yourself and you have this issue of a log. It's hyperbole. It's, an, uh, it's, it's in a sense humorous, right? That you would have this plank coming out of your eye, this beam. I mean, a, a piece of sawdust is, a, is really small. And I mean, we know how irritating a, even a small thing in your eye can be, right? But think of uh, a small piece of dust versus a log to build a building with. Like, that's pretty big, right? So the issue is not judging because we do that all the time. And we, to judge is to discern between what is right and what is wrong. Is that a wrong thing to do? 
No, we do that. Every experience in life, how we process things in life, we often process them based on our idea of what is right or our idea of what is wrong. And for the Christian, our idea of what is right and what is wrong pertains to how Jesus feels about it, what the scripture says about it, right? That's our idea of what is right and wrong. But what we, what we, what we tend to do is to look at the, the issues in others' lives, not having the courage to look at the issues in our life. So this past week, we were on vacation and at Hillsgrove, Pennsylvania. How many of you have heard of Hillsgrove, Pennsylvania? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? Uh, no one, how many of you have heard of World's End State Park? Good, Scott has, because his mom and uh, you probably were born there, right, John? I'm just kidding. <laughs> John, John named it. Um, the, anyways, so we, um, we, were, we were out in the mountains this past week and we got to enjoy time by the fire. And oftentimes, uh, what most of the nights at when Emily put the kids to bed, I was there by myself, right? And oftentimes, as I was there by myself, my mind would wander. I don't know if you've ever been by yourself. And your mind wanders, right? Your mind starts to think about things. Um, well, the, the thing is, is that you know that you are not dealing with the log things in your life when your mind, when you're in, soli in, in solitude, your mind goes to other people's issues. Right? You understand? Like you start thinking about the people in your life that you love, that have made decisions here, there, 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 but you never give attention to you. You never give attention to oh, how you might have offended that person or why. Why you've offended someone, or uh, why, why you do what you do, why you feel the way you feel. Those are the kind of questions we avoid, right? Because then we have to get real with ourselves. And so the, the problem with that is that you, when you don't deal with the issues of self, when you don't look at yourself or judge yourself rightly, um, your vision of others is impaired. Because a lot of times when, when there's an issue that arises, sometimes you, uh, you project your own issues onto them. So to, you go to help somebody, but you're going to help somebody all jacked up. And you don't have the right perspective. See, what Jesus says here is not that you shouldn't judge. He says to us that we should judge ourselves first. And then he says to us that the standard you use, you should be okay with that standard being used against you. You understand? So, for example, when I was a kid, I got slapped on the mouth a lot. Because I said awesome, great words, right? That's why you get slapped in your mouth, right? But the thing is, I, I would get, get, get knocked upside the head and don't say that, right? But... I, all the time, I'm only doing what everybody around me was doing. All the adults said the words that I wasn't supposed to say. How am I? I'm learning here, parents, right? How am I supposed to, to know what's right and what's wrong, what I should say or not say, right? Especially when my uncle says something and everybody's laugh, but everybody laughs. But when I say what he said, I get slapped. What's up with that? So the standard is, the measure is, to, just to bring it home, is are you okay so I got slapped in the mouth by my mom. Is my mom okay with me slapping her mouth when she uses that same word? You get the, the point? 
Obviously, she's, she won't be okay. I probably wouldn't be here if I did that. Um, there would be no Pastor John Eric ever in life. <laughs> I probably wouldn't have a grave. I don't know. Maybe just stuck somewhere in some place. But anyways, you get the point? Is that the measure you use, it will be used against you. It's not that you shouldn't judge between what is right or wrong. It's that you should deal with your issues first. Why? Because when you deal with your issues first, the log, then you can see clearly how to help somebody else. That's what he says. In verse 5, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. To see clearly is to see with accuracy. Then you can really look at the issue in someone else's life and say, hey, this is really the issue. If you have a log coming out and you just look at them, first of all, you'll probably whack them. They won't feel happy about that. But at the, in the same respect, they're going to look at you and say, who are you to tell me this when I see your issue? So not dealing with your own things impairs your judgment. You might be pointing out things that are not worth pointing out in someone's life. Or second, you might be, uh, you discredit what you're saying by not dealing with the things that you ought to deal with that are obvious to other people. You understand? And so uh, to, to judge rightly is to deal with yourself first and then you can help somebody else. So it's not saying don't judge because there is a place for judgment. In fact, in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says to the church in Corinth, I have already cast judgment. There's an issue where this man takes his, uh, his father's wife. And that's something that not even the Gentiles would do. Something that's disgraceful in this, in this society. And so they, they were accused, Paul accuses them of being arrogant. Like they weren't dealing with it. It was an obvious thing that was uh, messing up the community of believers in Corinth. It was an obvious thing that they weren't dealing with. And Paul says, ought you not to judge your brother and cast him out if he doesn't repent? So I'm guessing that it got to the point where he was confronted and confronted and didn't repent of his sin. And then Paul's remedy is hand him over to Satan. So that Satan would have his way, but that God would save his soul. And so the other issue that Paul brings up in that passage is that we, he says to them, I'm not saying that you should judge the world because God is the judge of the world. What I'm saying is that you and you, all of you and us, you and I should judge one another. We should be looking at each other's life and saying what's right and what's wrong. And when something is wrong, we should go in love having dealt with our log to them. Why? Because that's how we help one another. Because the reason why we overlook the log is because we're not inclined to look in. But it is helpful for others who have a subjective perspective to look at us and say, hey, I think this might be an issue in your life. Maybe you should give attention to it. And I give praise to the Lord. It doesn't always, uh, I don't always swallow it well, but my wife is very good at pointing my flaws out, not saying that she nitpicks, but she's very good and wise about when she, when she speaks to me. I, I appreciate when she says to me, hey, this is an issue. 
or even sees, sees an alarm, an alarm goes off in her mind, and then she asks me a question about that. And then there's clarification. Were you feeling this way? Is this how you meant that to come out of your mouth or not? Right? Those kind of things. Being in community helps that. This is how we become more like Christ because our sanctification, sanctification is the process of looking more and more like Jesus each day, right? Our process of sanctification is not an individual's job, primarily. It is a community project. You and me, all of us working together, striving and, and living for Jesus and working things out. You understand that? And so Jesus is not saying, don't judge. He says to, uh, he says to the, us, don't look while you're overlooking. So if we're going to judge rightly, or we need to discern ourselves. If we're going to discern ourselves, then we need to ask the question. I've already asked the question, the first one. When, when in relation to the measure, uh, the measure that we use, we should ask ourselves, am I okay with this standard being used against me? So as you parent, as you relate to your spouse, as you relate to coworkers, neighbors, family members, uh, all the people in your life, as you relate to them and you are discerning between what is good and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, are you okay with that standard being used against you? If you're not okay with that, then your vision is skewed. You understand? If you are okay, then have at it. But if you're not able to see clearly your issue in life, you could always ask the Lord. The psalmist, the guy who wrote the psalm, that's what a psalmist is, Psalm 139 he says in uh, let me get, Psalm 139, uh, verses 23 through 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thought, or test me, and know my anxious thought. See if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. You see what the psalmist does? He, he invites the Lord to search him. And the only reason why you would invite the Lord to search you is because you're aware that I don't see myself clearly. I need, I need an outside perspective, a divine perspective. Someone who can pierce into my heart and see the depths of who I am and reveal to me these things. Not just so that I could feel bad about myself, but that so, that I could, uh, so that I could confess that, repent of it, and walk in the way everlasting. So if you don't know what your issue is, the log in your, in your eye, if you, don't, if you can't see that clearly, you could always ask those you trust. It's a good place to start. Uh, you could always ask the Lord, and He will be gracious to reveal it, uh, your, the issue in life. Um, but if you're going to ask Him, then you have to listen. Some of us need to cultivate a listening ear to the voice of the Lord. Ask yourself, ask others, ask the Lord, confess Repent and proceed with humility. In fact, this is probably good practice uh, for conflict resolution. Before you go and confront anyone about any issue, deal with your own issues. It's a good place to start. And this is not saying, all right, to stop you from confronting others. This is so that you go with clear perspective. So that you could really be helpful to that person rather than be a hindrance to them. 
You understand that? And so, what is Jesus saying? It's not, don't judge. He says to us, stop looking at others' issues while overlooking yours. Be willing to look at your own and then proceed. Amen? So that is discerning self. The next thing that Jesus brings us to is in verses 13 through 23, where we discern the path to eternal life. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I find encouragement that Jesus is not uh, scurrying around the issue. He's pretty direct. If you're going to enter, enter where? Where? This is a test. This is an open book test, right? Enter by the narrow gate. If you're going to enter, enter by the narrow gate. And so he then goes and contrasts two ways. There's a broad way, there's a narrow way. There's a broad gate and there's a narrow gate. There's a way that leads to life and a way that leads to destruction. There's a way that is easy and a way that is hard. There's a way in which many are work, walking, and there are, there's a way in which few are walking. You see that? So the, this, this idea of the, the, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to where? To destruction is synonymous with if all of us could walk on 95, unobstructed, no stoplights. We could go from Maine all the way to Miami, right, on 95. And it's broad and it's wide and we could do it all of us hand in hand whereas where we were this past week when Karis uh, when we were walking on we were hiking uh, we did a mile hike uh, it was a vigorous mile I don't know about you guys but not every mile is the same as I learned right when you have a mile that goes like this versus a mile that goes like that no mile is the same just like nobody's life is the same, amen? Anyways, that's a side sermon uh, right there. No extra fee. Um, but when we were walking, we assumed a, a formation. We had Damien at the front. We had Emily and Alicia on her back. And then the third person was Karis, our five-year-old. And then I was the last one. One, because if there was a bear, then Damien would be in first and I could run first. <laughs> Also, he was really good at taking care of the cobwebs, the spider webs. So thank you for that, David. Your sacrifice was appreciated. But at one point while we were hiking, Karis asked to walk side by side with me. She said, can I walk next to you? And I said, no, you can't because the path is too narrow. Right? And if in this path, though it was clear and though it was traveled well, there were still obstacles. There were still stones to get over, roots to not slip and break your face on, right? Thorns to avoid that were reaching into the path, you know, and twigs to, to avoid so that you don't get whacked in the face, uh, as some of us might have uh, got close to getting whacked in the face. The, the path that Jesus is calling us to discern and to find is not an easy path. So if you take that path, of that mile up, to, up the hill and down the hill with rocks and things over the river and through the woods. Grandmother's house we go, right? 
Take that in contrast with the Highway 95, where we all could walk side by side together, all the way from Maine to Florida, right? There's a big difference. And what Jesus says is that no one is walking on the path that leads to eternal life by default. In fact, by default, everyone is on the wide path. Many are taking this path. Many are walking and unaware that they are on this path. But though it's wide, though it's easy, though it's filled with comforts and pleasures and all these things, it leads somewhere and it leads to an eternal destiny of destruction. So you could have it easy. You could have it comfortable. You could have it uh, that your reputation is the best, that everybody loves you. You're in love with everyone. Uh, you believe whatever you want to believe uh, and lead to destruction. That sounds appealing, right? Well, obviously not because all of us are here today and we recognize that that way doesn't work. Because although that way is easy, it's filled with a lot of heartache. It's filled with a lot of regrets, right? That path. Oh, that path. Anyways, but Jesus calls us to find the narrow road. By default, we are walking on the wide path. Jesus says for us to find the path that leads to life. There's a difference. By default, we're walking uh, on the, the wide path, and Jesus says for us to find one guy comes to mind in the Bible in John chapter 3. His name is Nicodemus. He was a teacher of the law and was respected. He came finding the way of eternal life. He came to Jesus at night. And there he learned in that conversation with Jesus that there is no eternal life for those who are not born again. There is no eternal life for those who who aren't born again because you will not be able to see the kingdom unless you are born again, unless something happens inside of you, unless your faith is put on someone who can resurrect your spirit, who can give you life, who can, who can awaken you and open your eyes to see life as it should be seen and give you hope as it should be. And so on that day, Nicodemus learned that the way to be born again is not by the decision of your parents, but it's by the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person. And the way that you are born again, Jesus expounds a little bit about this, and is by believing in the Lord Jesus. He's, uh, John testifies in John chapter 1, verse 12, that those who believe and those who receive the Lord are given the right to become children of God. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus is teaching here in this passage of Scripture that we looked at is that there is no way that you can be syncretistic. That means that you can't just take a grab bag, a shopping bag from Aldi's and choose what pieces of religions you want in your life. There is no syncretism here. That's part of the Broadway. That's part of the, 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 the big road where you find it comfortable, where you don't want to deal with the logs in your eye, where you don't want to deal with the motives of your heart, where you don't want to deal with your sin in your life, right? Some people have uh, chosen, I don't want to believe in hell, so let me get this religion. Some people say, I don't want to believe, uh, that's a big thing, uh, the hell thing. I don't want to believe that... Um, 
that Jesus is the only way, so let me choose this one. That's syncretism, where you, you take a little bit of everything and you, you live out a, a hodgepodge of beliefs that often contradict themselves, but you feel good about it. And in the end, there'll be destruction. So there is no syncretism and there is no universalism. The idea that all roads lead to the same way is false. You can't even go to those leaders who spoke these things out and come to that conclusion that all roads lead to the same way. Say that to Muhammad and he will tell you you're absolutely wrong. You understand? Jesus came and spoke about an exclusive way. There is no other way. He says, I am the way. And not only speaking this, he surrendered his life to make the way. As we read in Revelations, he is the one who loved us. He is the one who freed us from our sin by his blood. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He made the way for us. He made the way for us. And so he teaches us that the narrow way that leads to the narrow gate, that le it leads to life, that is the better path to follow. So the question I want to ask is how, how do you know if you're on the wide path that leads to the wide gate? Well, oftentimes if, if you value, uh, let me just ask these questions. I won't go off script in that way. Several questions. Are there few people on it? Next question. How do you know if you're on the wide path that leads to the wide gate, that leads to destruction? Does it require you to die to yourself? Third question. Does it require you to renounce other belief systems? Fourth question. Does it require your submission to Jesus? If the answer is no, then you are on the wide path to the wide gate that leads to the destruction. But let me ask you, are you on the narrow gate? Or the, path, the narrow path that leads to the narrow gate that leads to eternal life? How do you know? Are there few people on it? Does it require you to die to self? Does it require you to renounce other belief systems? And does it require submission to Jesus? If the answer is yes, if you've answered yes to those with a wholehearted, then that means that you are on the path to the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. I would encourage you to be aware of where you're walking. Be aware of what you believe. Be aware of how you're living. Because that is indicative of where you're, where you're at. I think it's possible to at any point get off the wide path and find a narrow path that leads to, it, to eternal life. At any point. And just like 95 has off ramps, today, on June 30th, 2019, this is your off-ramp opportunity to get off the wide path and get on the narrow path. It's not going to be easy. There's rocks to over, come over. There's roots to be careful that you don't slip on. 
there's obstacles to go around. There are things on this path that will grab you. You might have to duck. You might have to climb a little bit. You might have to get a little out of breath. But it's the path that leads to life. It's not easy. Jesus was very clear. No one should ever look at Jesus' teaching and surmise that it is an easy task. But there is grace. There is the Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us. There is the joy of the Lord that strengthens us when we have to sacrifice things that we wouldn't otherwise sacrifice. So this life, following Jesus, is hard, but truly rewarding. And sometimes feels lonely when you have people in your life that you were doing life with and all of a sudden you're on the narrow path, they're ghosts. You don't see them. They're on the wide path. And then once in a while, the, the wide path and the, the narrow path intersect and you get an opportunity to shout out to the, yo, come on, it's worth it. And they either say yes or no. So Jesus calls us to discern ourself, to stop overlooking while looking at others' issues. Judge yourself rightly. Use the measure that you want others to use to you, uh, use with you. And Jesus also calls us to discern uh, the path to eternal life. And thirdly, Jesus calls us to discern false prophets. He says here, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree that bears good fruit, sorry, so where am I? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. When we're discerning false prophets, what we need to understand is that a false prophet is someone who pretends to speak for God. They might begin with good intentions. They might start out well, but they pretend to speak for God. They lie about God's call in their lives. They're not empowered by God, and they are not sent of God. This is a false prophet. False prophets aim to deceive by playing the part of a shepherd. It says there that they are, you will recognize, sorry, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These guys are dressed like shepherds, wanting sheep to follow them. But their way in which they're following is going to lead to their ruin. It says that they're ravenous wolves. That means that there is something inside this 
false teacher that wants to rip you apart. They want to do you harm. They may, be a, they may not intentionally want to do this, but essentially that's what they're doing. You understand? I don't think anyone, with the exception of really wicked people, wants to do people harm. Right? They might start out well, and then all of a sudden veer off because they're so enamored with self, and they want that affirmation from others, and they, they love the power, they get power hungry. Right, And so they say whatever they need to say to keep you. They say, uh, do whatever they need to do uh, to, to manipulate you in whatever way to keep you tight uh, and, 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 and they're close under their uh, rule and reign. But Jesus says to, the, to us that we will know them by their fruit. Because rottenness, that is what he says, bad, uh, what does he call it? A diseased tree that's a rotten, rottenness, a diseased tree bears bad fruit. Bad fruit is not useful. Bad fruit is not enjoyable. On the other perspective, goodness, so he's talking about intrinsically wicked people or intrinsically good people. It means that you are at your core good. You are at your core wicked. And I'm telling you that all of us outside of Jesus are at our core wicked. When Jesus comes in and does his thing in our lives and, and puts his Holy Spirit in our lives, there is goodness that's being produced in us. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit produces goodness in us. And we are the, uh, the, the good teacher, the good prophet um, has goodness flowing. And what you can see is that there is good fruit, useful fruit, and enjoyable fruit. What is the fruit of a false prophet? I want to draw your attention to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. I'll, I'll read it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. That's 2 Peter Chapter 2, 1 through 3. It's very, very pointed. He says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter is recounting what is happening in other places. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. What do they do? They bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their con condemnation from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. So a fruit, the fruit of, of a false prophet, as Peter writes, is that they introduce destructive heresies. What you believe dictates what you do. And so to, to introduce a destructive heresy would be to, to bring in a teaching that changes your trajectory of eternal life. So things like your belief about Jesus and his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his exaltation, your belief about who Jesus is, the origin of Jesus, the fact that he is God, 
The fact that He is God who died in our place for our sin. The fact that He is the one who rose again from the dead and was exalted to the right hand of the Father. If you don't believe that, that changes a lot about your trajectory, your eternal destiny. It's a destructive heresy. And so you have, uh, we have in the mainstream, just to, to come to mind, uh, well, that are pseudo-Christian, but not really, uh, are the Mormons. They teach, they do not believe in the deity of Christ. They do not believe that He is the Son of God, as Jesus said. You understand? And so when they introduce this heresy, they are, uh, they are in a sense, introducing something that's destructive. Because if Jesus is not God, then, he's, uh, then all his claims are a lie. If he's a created being, then he is not sufficient to, uh, to pay for sin. The other pseudo-Christian uh, that, that introduced false teaching, according to Jesus and the Bible, is the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. They have a watchtower, and if, I don't know if you've read it, at least the one that, that I read long ago, it had brackets around words. And I found those brackets helpful because those brackets show you where they changed the Bible. So they insert what they want to say uh, so that you come out with a different belief about Jesus. The Mormons have a whole other book of Mormon. So they look, they reference the Bible some, but their life is more lived out of the book of Mormon. And so what we need to understand is that there are destructive heresies that have, uh, that have come into our world that we need to be paying attention to. So other, other things that don't deal with the teaching but are as equally as destructive is that the false prophets tend to enslave their followers. They, uh, and for, to say that, what I mean is that you're not free to come and go. You understand? You have to be there. You have to be loyal to them. They demand your loyalty to them. They exploit you, as Second uh, Peter says. They demand your loyalty to them, <laughs> rather than to Jesus. So obedience to them and submission to them means submission to Jesus. So they use Jesus' name to control people. And we need to be careful with that. We see here in uh, Matthew 7 that these false teachers could come with false prophecies. Or they can uh, have false miracles or false casting out of demons. It can happen. Not everyone who calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be allowed into heaven. That's what Jesus says. Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Who gets to enter into heaven? The ones who does the will of my Father. And a false prophet doesn't want to do the will of the Father. They want to do their will. They want to do what they want to do. You understand? And so there's, there's a lot of that around. And I, you could Google it, but some legit teachers are often uh, criminalized and called false prophets. So I wouldn't trust Google too much as to what is, what is good and what is not. I would encourage you to read the Bible, learn who Jesus is, learn what Jesus has taught, learn what Jesus has done, 
and, and understand uh, and decipher all the things that people are saying and all the ways that people are living based upon Jesus' life. Because, one, if the only way to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to do the will of the Father, then you know that Jesus did it perfectly. Because where is Jesus? At the right hand of the Father. He did the will of the Father per perfectly. And so, in fact, when Jesus was teaching in John, he testifies that I'm only going to say what my Father is saying, what I'm hearing the Father in heaven say, and I'm only going to do what the Father in heaven is doing. So all of his miracles, all of his teaching, all of that came from the Father, uh, and he, he was only doing what the Father was doing and, what the Father was, and saying what the Father was saying. Jesus lived a life to fulfill that. So he's not a false teacher. <laughs> Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sin, who was buried, who was raised, and who was exalted to the right hand of the Father, he is not a false teacher. His claims are trustworthy and true. He is God. He is the Son of God. And by him, you may have eternal life. By him, you may experience the love of God. By him, you may be freed from your sin. By his blood. And by him, you may enter into eternal life. Should you trust in him and believe in him. Amen? So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us with discerning. Amen? So Lord, as we enter into your presence, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true, that your word is good, that you are strong and mighty, Lord, and that you are uh, pointed. You are precise. And so, Lord, today as we uh, sat under the teaching of your word, uh, you were precisely pointing out things in our lives that we need to deal with. And so I ask for courage to discern ourselves. Lord, I know that a lot of us feel so messed up that we don't even feel comfortable within our own skin. And so I ask, Lord Jesus, for the redeeming work, that freedom that you purchased for us on, on the cross by your blood, Lord, I ask that you would apply that, that we would be free uh, to, to understand ourselves rightly, Lord, and to judge ourselves rightly. And that as a church, we would not be hostile towards others' inputs in our lives. None of us lives an isolated life. If I want to become more like you, Jesus, I need my brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I thank you for your provision in that way. And may you align our, our perspective in that way. I ask, Lord, for those who, who are on the wide path, Lord, that they would take the off-ramp and, and, and walk into the narrow path and find a way to eternal life. I ask for your spirit to strengthen us, Lord. Uh, may your spirit strengthen us as we, are, as we face trials of many kinds. We know that our suffering is for a little while. But the glory that we will uh, experience is going to be eternal. And I ask, Lord, that we would uh, not consider ourselves better than you, Jesus. Uh, for just as you suffered, we will. And I ask that we would take courage in that. Your word says that we will enter into your, many will enter into your kingdom by tribulation and trials. And so, Lord, we thank you that you promise to be with us in those moments. We promise that there will be a harvest. You promise that there will be a harvest because of that, Lord. And so we ask for many to come uh, to you, Lord. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would 
that we would give ourselves to the teaching of your word, that we would spend time with you who are real and alive and good, and that we would know who's from you and who is not from you, Lord. We need your help with that, God, uh, because many times life gets so uncomfortable uh, that we want to run to what our itching ear wants to hear. But I ask, Lord God, that we would surrender to you and that, uh, Lord, as we live life, that we would uh, be able to discern who is right for us, what community is good for us, and, um, and that we would follow that wholeheartedly, Lord, and give ourselves sacrificially to that. We renounce that every other way leads to you. We, re we uh, affirm today that you are the only way, Jesus. And we look to you, and none other than to you, for our eternal destiny, Lord. Uh, we bless you, Lord, and we thank you that your, <laughs> your teachings are bearing good fruit. That the gospel is bearing fruit in our lives. That sin is unshackled. That uh, the bounds, the things that we were bound by, Lord, are being loosened and broken. Thank you that clarity of mind is ours in you. Thank you that a renewed mind is in you, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for the, greatest the great possibilities that you open, Lord, for us as we live for you and do the will of the Father. May we, like you, Jesus, entrust ourselves to the will of the Father. Teach us how to be intimate with you, to hear and to see what you are doing and what you are saying, Lord. We bless you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.